Welcome to ESO Offstage. I'm your host and ESO double bassist, Max Cardilli. Have you ever wondered what the difference between the violin and the fiddle is? The ESO gets to regularly play with amazing fiddle players from Edmonton and around the world. But we wouldn't necessarily call my colleagues in the violin section fiddlers, even though the violin and the fiddle are essentially the same instrument. So why do we make this distinction? To talk about this, we have to go back, way back, and to help us. My name is Amber Paquette, and I am the city's sixth historian laureate, and I'm the first historian laureate of Indigenous descent. I'm from the Michelle First Nation. Our band was disenfranchised in 1958, and we're the only band in all of Canada, actually, to, to be enfranchised in the 20th century, and we're still kind of seeking federal recognition uh, today. My family's both Cree and a little bit of Mohawk, too. And then the other side of my family is Métis, very, very strong Métis roots, very much uh, grounded in Edmonton and Alberta. My family's kind of always been documented in this place in Edmonton, Amiskwachi, Wiskayagan, Beaver Hills House. Amisk means beaver, and Wachi means mountain or hill. So that is why we're called uh, Amiskwachi. Um, and you add Wiskayagan to that because that means house. So later, it would be literally Beaver Hill House, because Fort Edmonton was on, of course, a, a massive hill. This area of Amiskwachi is just a colorful array of nations, really. And Edmonton is, has always been a special place because of its diversity. And it's kind of its location in Turtle Island, like on this continent, that makes it so special. You have the boreal forest and you have, you know, our waterways that can connect you, you know, anywhere you want to go. So Edmonton is kind of just this place where so many people would come to celebrate and trade. The first time of contact that's documented is definitely Anthony Henday. He didn't necessarily come through Edmonton. He actually went around it, which is funny because the Anthony Handy goes around. <laughs> and I don't think they even knew that when they did that. But um, <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he went around it. And uh, Anthony Henday, he's, he's kind of documented in this area by 1754. There was people who were here before him, some French folk. We don't know their names, though, but we do know they were there. So the first fort was not Right in Edmonton, it was closer to Fort Saskatchewan along the forks where it kind of splits. And that was originally known as Fort Augustus. And that was built in 1794. And that was actually built by the Northwest Company. Usually we get the narrative of the Hudson's Bay Company. But there was, in fact, two companies that were out here in a very bitter and sometimes comical trade war. Like the Northwest Company would build a fort and the Hudson's Bay Company would come along and build a fort on the other side of the river. And then... And then Northwest Company would figure out that if they would just build fake forts and just waste Hudson's Bay Company's time, they would follow them wherever they went. So they actually would do that for quite some time, just build, like start building forts and then just like ditch <laughs> um, stuff like that. But, um, you know, and sometimes it was, you know, violent and, and whatnot. But um, there was a lot of things that really played out through all the Canadian West. You know, the Battle of Seven Oaks played kind of a huge part in, in the amalgamation of those companies out here. And it's 1821 where they are officially kind of merged into the Hudson's Bay Company. And that really kind of changes things out here, actually. With that amalgamation, over a thousand company employees were let go and only about 300 were kept. So what that really created was... Uh, the emergence of free traders. We call them proto-Métis. They would later become the Métis themselves. 
The Métis, also known as Otipimsuwak, which means the people who own themselves uh, in Cree or Nehewak. They're very much a people rooted in a place, whereas often people get the kind of Eurocentric colonial version that they're a mixed race. It's more of a cultural identity rooted in who you come from and where you come from. Just so much about Métis culture stems from music, I think. And that kind of just takes us back to, you know, the fur trade when it was a different time and it was more of an isolated place. And the Métis, they kind of filled in a large vacuum of people that were once here that were no longer here due to the effects of like disease and, and colonialism. So it was um, very much a time where you needed to uplift yourself. And the Métis did very much that. They were always, always throwing parties and dances. Sometimes that would literally last like like days. People would dance days straight. And often these were dry parties too, which which is amazing to think of. But because they would work so hard, gosh, like the fur trade and and just Métis life in general was just such a such a rigorous life. Um, you would work so hard, but then you know you would celebrate and, and party quite hard when when winter rolled around. So, but when when it comes to music, it's very much just a reflection of indigenous roots, but also a very unique take on European roots as well. Hi, Mr. Arkan. How are you? Uh, right on time you are. I was lucky enough to speak with a true master of the Métis fiddle, who is considered one of the most decorated fiddlers in the country, with awards such as one of our country's highest civilian honours, the Order of Canada. My name is John Arkan. My given name is Jean-Baptiste Arkan. I'm a fiddle player, and I have been a fiddle player most of my life. And I'm uh, 78 years old, and uh, yeah, I'm still playing. How did you learn the fiddle? Just by ear from listening to different people playing. I just uh, picked it up uh, as part of the family thing to do kind of thing. And uh, my uh, my family uh, played all the way through the, the fur trade and uh, up till now. I think uh, the first Arcan, uh, Simon Arcan. He was uh, here already in 1620 or something. I think they were from the French Alps. The fiddle was uh, always hanging on the wall. That's all there was for entertainment. The stuff that we play as, uh, as Meiji people, uh, it's all dance music, like uh, La Danse de Crochet, the Red River Jig, Danse de Canard, waltzes and polkas and you name it. And that was all, always done as, as a social gathering like in the old uh, houses or uh, one-room school. In houses, well, the most, most of the people had small houses, so uh, they'd take, kick the furniture out so the dance was over and then bring it back in again. Uh, like there's no guitars, no piano, no no nothing, but your feet kept on to the music, so it kind of helped the fiddler along. Say, uh, on a square dance, if, they were really particular on, on how you played a, a tune. And uh, if one of the square dancers was late coming in, coming home, when they were dancing, you know, they, they had another bar to it. You listen to that music in the car when you're 
traveling down the road, first thing you know, you're speeding. You know, it's uh, speeds up the mind somehow. It just about died off here before uh, uh, in the sixties when when all the people wanted to, uh, wanted to play rock and roll and the guitars come and uh, I was the only guy playing playing that stuff for uh, quite a while until we started the fiddle camp in Amalek and uh, and from there on it grew again in its present form and uh, it's part of the Canadian uh, curriculum now. Most people will uh, die with uh, the specific tunes uh, that uh, they never taught anybody. Ever since I've been recording uh, Métis tunes, the old, the old, old ones, they don't even know the names of them. So in 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 my case, when I do record them, uh, uh, we give them numbers or names of the last people that were known to play the tunes. It wasn't uh, until uh, 45 years, I think, after my father died that uh, I recorded these tunes, and I remember every one of them that he used to play, and my grandfather and uh, different different people that used to play them tunes. I don't think anybody else even knows uh, they existed. And now uh, all these tunes that uh, we've recorded uh, are in... Uh, book form and uh, uh, you can listen to them you can uh, you can learn them you can do anything you want with them except for the dance part now that's missing somebody has to take the, the reins by the by the hand and uh, start collecting uh, different dances that these people used to do and then teach them speaking of dancing I spoke to Lyle Donald of the Edmonton Métis Traditional Dancers about the work he does in preserving and passing on his knowledge of Métis dance to the next generation. Our group started back in 1985 and was started by my mother and my dad was a dancer. And uh, so we have four generations of dancers in our, in our family. So when we were kids, uh, we were taught the importance of the music and and the dancing and how it went together. A lot of times when you have a good fiddle player, the music kind of uplifts the dancers and they kind of want to dance better and dance harder. Dances of Rippers Lines are the traditional Métis dances. That is the the duck dance, the uh, drops of brandy, the reel of eight, the uh, red rubber jig, reel of four, Broom dance. Uh, when we start off the broom dance, we dance with the broom at our side. And when the, and the music changes, we put the broom between our legs and it goes into the infinity sign. So it means two things to us. It means make you forever. And it also means uh, have our First Nation side mixed in with our European side. Mostly in the Red River Jig and that kind of stuff. That's where you'll see different uh, styles, First Nation styles. And, Sometimes you'll see fancy dancing, so they move their feet a little bit uh, faster and they do crossovers and that kind of stuff. The crossover stuff came from grass dancers in the First Nations community. So a lot of those kind of steps come from the First Nations side. With the uh, Scottish and Irish uh, French dancing, you dance uh, straight up and down and you keep your arms to your side. 
and all of your motion comes from your hips down. Music is bringing your legs up. My dad was such a great dancer, and uh, he always had a big smile on his face because he enjoyed it. But uh, one thing he really enjoyed was the fiddle playing, was uh, lifting him off the floor and making him dance even better. And after every time uh, they would finish, the first thing they would do is get up when they were going off the dance floor, they would go and shake the fiddle player's hand because uh, they enjoyed dancing for him because they they had uh, the fiddle player there bring them up a little bit higher to, to do their steps and feel pride. As a dance group, we've been going for 36 years this year. Half of the group that we had were our family members, my, my cousins, my nephews, my nieces. Uh, and also we had a lot of kids uh, from the community. So over the years, we've probably had a group of over, let's say about 90 to 120 dancers. And uh, the great thing about uh, a lot of the kids that stayed with us for a while is when they would move back home up north or whatever, they would go and teach uh, dancing in their communities. My uh, older son was uh, a great dancer. He was a eight-time Canadian Red River Gig champion. And he reminded me so much of my dad because he always had this big smile on his face too. And then now I see it on my grandchildren and the younger generations that are coming up. It just makes me feel so so proud that these guys are, are great uh, dancers and uh, enjoy it. My name is David Gramet. I uh, taught at the University of Alberta in the music department. I taught music history. I did a variety of topics. For the last decade or so, I started getting interested in the history of music in early Edmonton. How did European traditions, American popular musics get transplanted here? How did they interact with and or displace the music of the Métis and the First Nations who were here? And suddenly that got me into looking at the history of settler colonialism at what was present in the archives, at old newspapers, old photographs. Here are the resources right here. You don't have to go to Europe. You don't have to go around the world to do research. It's right here in the archives. And what, what can we make of it? The violin as an instrument, yet yeah, proved remarkably mobile and enormously flexible in Canada in the, in the 19th century. We get accounts of singing and playing voyageurs early on in the 1800s. It becomes part of the cliche of, of voyageur culture. And of course, that fur trade culture is also the kind of matrix out of which Métis culture grew and fiddling became a very important part of their musical life as well, still is. It's such a vital and, and energetic living tradition that it clearly was around in early Edmonton. I suspect it has been around all the way through Edmonton's history. But again, the process of moving it out of visibility happened by early in the century. I mean, one of one of the, the founding fathers of Edmonton is Laurent Carnot, cultural icon for, for the Métis, but he was certainly known 
as a fiddler, one of the, one of the most sought after fiddlers in Edmonton by the time he got there in the 1880s till he left early in the 20th century. There's a marvelous portrait of him that the city archives has where he is seated, his wife is standing to the, the viewer's left, and on a table in the middle is, is his fiddle. It's a very formal portrait. It's in a studio with, with painted draperies in the background, and there's a, a carpet on the floor. Um, it's, it's clearly meant to convey establishment. He, he had a, a fascinating life and clearly learned to negotiate those cultural divides. He wanted to run for the territorial legislature in the 90s, but was forbidden because of that, that association with Riel, but went on to become a successful businessman and important citizen and participant through his, through his musical activities. One of the pleasures of, of doing this work was to realize that not all of the U of A campus, but the part of it that the Fine Arts Building that houses the music department is on was actually part of Laurent Garneau's homestead. Laurent Garneau was the richest man in Edmonton. There was not a time he could not write a six-figure check. This is a very interesting story, and it's an Edmonton story. He had been writing letters to Louis Riel. They were, you know, they were friends. And um, the RCMP, during the rebellion, they knew of his relationship with, with Riel, and they knew of the letters. And so one day they came marching up to his house on the hill and his wife, Eleanor, she was um, scrubbing laundry in her wash basin and she saw the redcoats, you know, coming up and she knew they were coming for her. So she, she raced inside the house and she grabbed the letters and she, she very discreetly and cleverly washed them away in her wash basin as they approached, which very much saved his life. He would have been hung um, for his associations with Riel. A bishop had to go all the way out to Ottawa to be like, hey, let's not hang this guy because he's not doing anything wrong. You could say that what happened out east was a domino effect throughout the Canadian West. And um, people had to leave this place. Professor Grammett wrote a really interesting paper called The Transnational History of Settler Colonialism and the Music of the Urban West. At the very beginning, he poses two questions. One, what role did music play in the settlement of Edmonton? And two, why should anyone who lives outside that city care? I asked him if he could answer these questions for us. Yeah. <laughs> How long do you have? I'll take the second one first. Why should anybody care? And briefly, one of the reasons I think it's interesting, besides those of us who grew up in or spent a lot of time and lived in Edmonton, you know, to, to be interested in your own local history is perfectly natural. But the other part of it is that Edmonton is one of a whole host of cities that grew up as a result of these waves of settlement that worked their way west across North America. Meanwhile, it was happening as well in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa is a, a related case. This Anglophone settler colonialism that from the late 1700s on into the early part of the 20th century sent enormous numbers of people into places where uniformly they tried to establish mining, various 
extractive processes and built cities to supply them. And also, as a musicologist, what interested me was brought their music with them in various forms. And so the process that happened in Edmonton as it grew from a tiny little place in the 1880s to a city of some 70,000 people just on the brink of World War I happened all over the place, a kind of massive explosive growth of cities doubling in size every few years for a couple of decades. And they typically would crash because you can't sustain that kind of development for too long and then gradually find their way back. And in the process, sought to establish a kind of life that was modeled on what they knew but often figured as improved. What it obscures first and foremost is the presence of others for thousands of years. The idea that people are coming to a virgin land. Western Canada in particular was often called the last best West. That is, you know, one more Western settlement, this time we'll really do it. And city after city developed huge competition. I mean, we were familiar enough with the competition between Edmonton and Calgary, but that kind of struggle for local predominance happened all over the place. And, and in fact, music could get involved in that as well with who has the best band. Can a city develop an orchestra that will sustain itself? When you read accounts of early music in, in a city, and, and various people have written these about all kinds of, of cities, it tends to be a kind of story of progress. How how institutions gradually developed. And if First Nations people are mentioned at all, it tends to be, this is the way it was, but very quickly, that part of the story is left behind. And what has happened over the last couple of decades is historians in a, in a variety of fields have started looking back at this and looking more carefully at what was going on in the city and recognizing that these people who were here first, in fact, were a part of city life for quite a while, not always recognized, certainly not always treated, in fact, very rarely treated as equals and people with equal rights and a culture to respect, but nonetheless playing a role. Edmonton was a multilingual community for quite a long time where English, French, and Cree were very common languages, and the practices of drumming, fiddling, folk song were all heard pretty regularly, and that continued. But as the city-building impulse becomes stronger and the effort to boost Edmonton as a major city in development builds up steam, you get more and more of a kind of Anglophone cultural dominance, writing out these other practices so that you get a sense of rural life and city life. And it's city life and it's musical accompaniments and entertainments that get by far the most attention. So in 1897, we had the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria. There was a pavilion built for dancing, and it was specifically mentioned in, in the bulletin that those who want to can entertain themselves 
dancing to the Red River Jig, uh, which the author certainly knew was strongly associated with the Métis. That's that's sort of the, the almost Métis anthem as a fiddle tune. In 1905, Alberta became a province. What's that? Eight years apart, you have two major occasions for celebration. In the meantime, Edmonton had grown considerably, and also it really, really wants to appear sophisticated. There's a grand ball, there's an inaugural concert, there's a parade, there had been a parade in 1897, but this one is bigger and more elaborate. The governor general comes, the prime minister, Wilfrid Laurier comes, but there is no mention in anything that I ran across. And there's a lot of press coverage of this in a couple of newspapers that exist now by by this point in Edmonton, no mention of First Nations participation. The ball in 1905 is a formal Euro-American ball with a, with a dance orchestra. Fiddling is no longer something we want to acknowledge as part of our our urban life. And in fact, you, you find ads for concerts and musical entertainments around that time that say no square dances even. So that that sort of rural country music you know, there, there will be a revival of it decades later, and it becomes associated with Albertan identity for sure. But at that time, no. Classical music, yes, but also urban popular music. I also asked Professor Grammet if he could shed some light on the age-old question, what really is the difference between the violin and the fiddle? One of the big distinctions is literacy, musical literacy. Fiddling is an oral tradition. There are a couple of pictures of violinists from around the turn of the century. There's one wonderful portrait of a studio that is in the provincial archives now. A Professor Chisholm, who was teaching for a couple of years at Alberta College, these very formally dressed pupils ranging in age from maybe 10 years old to in their 20s. And right in the middle next to the teacher is a music stand facing out towards the camera with an open piece of music on it. As if to say, what's distinctive about us is we are string players. We are violinists. We are not fiddlers. We play written music. I've talked to a number of people who who are studying the culture of string instruments in, in Europe and especially England, and they've never seen in the European tradition, any pictures like that of studios or performers that so highlight the fact that we want to show the music as what distinguishes us. And I think that's that's a real sign of what's going on here, that we want to make a distinction between ourselves as urban literate musicians and other practices of, of fiddling and establish that boundary. And music music is a way of making that kind of cultural boundary. I was speaking with Amber backstage at the Winspear Center before her performance of her own spoken word poetry in a concert alongside ESO musicians. She told me about some of the powerful activism that was emerging in the 20s and 30s in the Métis community. James Brady was an incredible man who took thousands of photographs of everyday Métis life. He just did that because he knew the importance of archiving it and saving it. And if he didn't do that, gosh, I couldn't imagine what we would have lost. He was a founding member of the Métis Association of Alberta. 
Um, and he vanished without a trace in the 1960s. We don't even know whatever became of him. So our leaders did amazing, incredible things. Like, you know, like I'm about to perform and I just keep thinking about Ramona Sinclair and, and Francis Beardry. They were Meiji Cree performers, um, poets and spoken word artists who performed here in Edmonton in the 1920s. They went through opera houses all over Canada. You know, even one of them went, even went to Sydney and around the world. We don't know who they are, right? We don't know their pictures. We don't see their faces, but that's amazing. And we should know them. <laughs> to talk more about fiddle traditions throughout Canada, I spoke to an incredible fiddle player who's been inducted into the North American Fiddlers Hall of Fame not to mention being commissioned to compose and perform at the Vancouver Winter Olympic opening ceremonies in 2010, a medley called Fiddle Nation, which he played with the ESO just a few years back. My name is Calvin Volrath, and I'm a traditional fiddle player. I grew up on the old music of uh, Don Messer and uh, Andy DeJarlis, and I've made my living as a fiddle player for the last 45 years. I, you know, I started recording albums when in 1981, and uh, this year I released my 71st album. And as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a fiddle player. I mean, they would tell me when I was three years old, I'd sit right beside my dad and I'd have two butter knives while he was playing the fiddle. I'd be mimicking him. All the tunes that my dad played, I could hum them when I was eight years old. So when I got my first fiddle, it was kind of easy for me to find. I had the tunes in my head. I mean, I was eight years old and I'd heard my dad play fiddle all the time. My dad, he learned from his mom, uh, they, they called it a scatting or to loot or something. They'd say, and so my dad would play the fiddle from learning from her scatting the tunes. And, uh, and if she scatted them crooked, that's how he learned them. We call it a little bit crooked. It might have, uh, 19 bars or it might only have 13 bars or might not be two beats in a bar sometimes it's one beat in a bar sometimes three beats in a bar and and it doesn't matter as long as it has that pulse you know like the drum the people dance to it and and it's built for dancing it's there's lots of lots of bow movement makes you just feel it's not just notes it's like the notes come to life it's it's really all about dancing even even my dad, he played some tunes that he'd add an extra beat. And I'd say, Dad, I think you're doing that wrong. He'd say, what do you mean I'm doing it wrong? And I went, well, I don't know. When we hear that tune on the record by Don Messer or Ned Landry, they don't add that extra beat. He goes, but it feels good, doesn't it? And I went, yeah, it feels good. He says, then it's good. It kind of made sense to me right there. There's no such thing as music police. There was nobody there handing out tickets because they were playing it wrong. Later on, when I got playing and, and, and traveling more and more, uh, I had heard from, from some old, old fiddle players that came from Andy to Jarlis times uh, that they said that Andy, he would travel to northern uh, Manitoba or, you know, down in North Dakota. And there was these old tunes and they were really, really crooked. And Andy would straighten them out. So they were 16 bars or 32 bars, and they were standard like how the rest of us knew music. And a lot of the old fiddle players that I got to meet, 
they said that was wrong. Andy shouldn't have did that. He changed our music. You know, I, I started my first band in 1975, and probably in 1976 or 1977, I got hired to play at the Friendship Center in Edmonton every Friday night. The dances would go from 10 o'clock at night till 2 o'clock in the morning. The hall held 300 or 400 people, and we played fiddle music all night long. It was fiddle music, fiddle music, fiddle music, and uh, and it was square dancing. We, we'd have an MC on stage, and everybody danced. Everybody knew how to dance. It's just every family had a fiddler. Every community had a fiddler, and they all played a little bit different. Everywhere in the country, there's different styles of fiddling everywhere, and uh, if we only had one style, we'd only need one fiddle player. I love hockey. Uh, not as much as uh, fiddling, though, and music. So, music's the best, and then hockey's pretty good. This is Daniel Gervais, two-time winner of the Canadian Grandmaster Fiddle Championship and regular collaborator with the ESO. He showed me what sort of rhythms make up different fiddle tunes and dances. Here's a waltz from Andy Jars. A one, two, three, one, two... A waltz. And then you have to play a jake. Another thing from Andy the Jarvis. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay? I'll just play a reel. So, one, two, one, two. Yeah. So that's called the Manitoba special. Count in four in your head. So one, two, three. And like it just goes on like that. Like it's square, right? So here's like a duck dance from Richard Callahoo. One, two, three, four. You didn't get very far. So you can dance to it. But it's not, it's not in fours, it's not in eights, it's, it's not in sixteenths, it's high part and low part, or something like that, sometimes. Daniel is a fiddler, but he's also a classically trained musician. We talked about what it's like navigating between those two worlds. Where did this separate? Because at one point, musicians were playing for kings and queens in, in Europe. When did they become fiddlers versus violinists? We say fiddling is dance music. Well, weren't they playing pavans and gavats and sarabans and things like that? They were playing dance music. <laughs> Baroque music was dance music. So where did this separate? In our day and age, lots of the fiddlers that I know are trained classically. They have like amazing technique, but they also know the culture of how to make a fiddle tune dance. And it's like a question of language, right? Like I've been in trouble for swinging Mozart. Well, but also you could be in trouble for playing a fiddle tune too straight or something, you know? So yes, if I'm playing Mozart, I should definitely play it with the right language and right style. And same, same thing with fiddling. You should know the language, listen to it. And, you know, immersing yourself in the culture. So like, look at uh, Gilles Lepape. He's amazing. He's 
an amazing classical violinist, and he plays Irish fiddling. And I know lots of Baroque violinists play Irish fiddling. It's the same instrument, but it is, it's a different culture. First fiddle camp in Canada, it was in Emma Lake, Saskatchewan, just outside of Prince Albert. It really kind of started the whole culture and the whole movement because now there's fiddle camps everywhere. It's coast to coast. There was a sense of community and I think that was really exciting for people. So, uh, so John Arkan was my, um, first teacher at the fiddle camp in 1997 and we're like good friends still. And I go to his fiddle festival every year, the John Arkan fiddle festival. And then Calvin, yeah, for sure is like one of my biggest mentors and heroes. They're defining Canadian fiddling. I think it was 1974, my dad was taking me to my first fiddle contest that was hosted by the CFCW radio station. And we got to the fiddle contest, and there was no kids. I was the only kid. It was kind of like a, an old-timer's game. I was just absolutely shocked. I thought everybody was playing the fiddle. That's all we knew at our house is we knew fiddle music. And then in 1988 was the very first fiddle camp in Canada, which was held in Emma Lake, Saskatchewan. And I got a call to teach at that. And when they called me, I said, well, no, I can't teach. I don't know what I'm doing. I play by ear. And the guy that was going to run it, uh, his name was Sandy Cameron. He said, hey, I got your records. And he said, you play good. Don't tell me you don't know what you're doing. And he said, well, I was going to offer you this amount of money. And it was really good money, more than I was making playing in a band. And so I said, well, when does it start? I'll be there. So I taught at that first camp in 1988. And fiddle camps have now spawned. I mean, they're everywhere. You know, every province has two or three fiddle camps. And they all spawn from that Emelake camp. And so now the culture of the fiddle there's so many youngsters playing fiddle today and that's largely in part as well you know to the fiddle camps and to natalie mcmaster and uh, ashley mcisaac who really made it popular i know ashley quite well i'm gonna say this is maybe 20 or 25 years ago he was playing with the edmonton symphony orchestra and he had everybody in the symphony orchestra playing the spoons with him Maybe 1996, there was a fella up in Sheridan, Manitoba. His name was Blaine Klippenstein. He taught in a one-room schoolhouse that had 24 students, grade 1 to grade 8. And he thought something that might really help these kids is if they could learn how to play the fiddle. And one year, this Blaine Klippenstein showed up at this fiddle camp and talking to him, I said, you a fiddle player? He said, no, I'm not a fiddle player, but I teach school. And so I want to teach the kids how to play fiddle. So I'm here to learn how to play fiddle. So he took the beginner class. He learned a couple of things. And when the camp was over in five days, he bought 24 fiddles for the kids. And he went back to Sheridan with them. The next year after that, he called me up to see if I would come for a week to give a workshop to these kids in the school. So I did that, stayed at his house. The other schools were seeing what was happening with this little school in Sheridan. This program has grown now. They've got 37 teachers teaching throughout northern Manitoba in this Frontier School Division. There's 5,000 kids in northern Manitoba playing the fiddle now. Senator Elizabeth Hubley from Prince Edward Island, who is a fiddle player, put a bill together and presented it. The Canadian Grandmasters Fiddling Association flew us all in, and we went and met with the Senate. We each had maybe 10 minutes to do a presentation on why we thought Canada deserves a National Fiddling Day. And uh, when we finished our little 10-minute uh, speech each, 
we were able to pull out our fiddles and play for them. Uh, we were told that was the first time that there was ever live music in the Senate, and a dance broke out. They started dancing and step dancing. Then it got passed on to the House of Commons, and uh, and it was passed. The the third Saturday in May has become uh, National Fiddling Day. We couldn't quite convince them to uh, uh, give everybody the day off, but uh, it's a holiday just the same. A quick announcement, linked in the show notes or on our website, winspearcenter.com slash podcast. We have a short survey that will be open until April 1st. We would love to hear from you about what you think of the podcast, and you can be entered to win one of several prizes. Thank you for listening to ESO Offstage. We truly appreciate it, and your feedback is important to us. In this episode, you heard the amazing John Arcand playing the Red River Jig and one of his own tunes called Ward Allen, as well as Calvin Volrath's wonderful recording of his own tune, The Reel of the Buffalo. In the show notes, you can find links to their websites from where you can purchase their music, as well as many other resources where you can learn about our guests, fiddling, Laurent Garneau, and Métis music and dance. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Amber Paquette, John Arcand, Lyle Donald, David Grammett, Calvin Volrath, and Daniel Gervais, who shared their time and voices for this episode. This episode was produced in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, also known as Edmonton, on the traditional lands referred to as Treaty 6 Territory, a place that has been a meeting ground, traveling route, and home for many Indigenous peoples since time immemorial, including the Cree, Métis, Dene, Nakota Sioux, Soto, and Blackfoot, whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our vibrant community. This episode was produced by me, ESO double bassist Max Cardilli. If you want to connect with me about the podcast, you can write to eso.offstage at winspearcenter.com. <laughs>